0: I'd like to introduce to you our next speaker, Um, Patrick Mamatuba is head of alternative investments and portfolio manager at Stanlib. Patrick has 22 years experience um, in in areas in the investment industry. He joined Stanlib in 1999 and has held various positions including those of bond trader, portfolio manager as well as chief investment officer. Prior to joining StanLib, he worked at Transnet's Treasury as well as at the South African Reserve Bank. He received a BCom from the University of Cape Town, a BCom honors from uh, the University of South Africa, and is also a CFA charter holder. Patrick is somebody that is also interested in hiking, jogging, and running. Um, you'll see when he gets to the stage what those events tend to do to people, um, or those practices tend to do to people, as compared to somebody like me who um, has None of those interests, so, Patrick.
1: <laughs> thanks very much. All right, thank you. Uh, thank Costa, um, and uh, thanks uh, everybody for inviting me uh, to come and speak to you. Um, I made sure when Costa read my CV that it's quite clear that I'm not an actuary, so that uh, you'll see as I go on that there's a few disclaimers that I make. Um, my training. Uh, it comes more from the economics background, and we tend to make assumptions on a lot of things. So, there will be assumptions in what I'll be presenting. Um, I must also say that I have not had uh, a chorus of actually singing before, so it was quite impressive when we were singing for <laughs> uh, for So, I'm very impressed. Uh, you have reformed my. Um, uh, stereotype of the actuaries, which is formed by the few that I do know, and uh, there's a few in the room, so <laughs> I think your colleagues have done you proud. Um, I've been asked to speak about alternative investments, uh, particularly in relation to DC funds. I know a little bit uh, more about alternative investments than I don't know about DC funds, so there'll be a bit more assumptions, as I said, about DC funds. Um, what I thought I'll do by way of uh, agenda is to <coughs> sort of spend the first part of the presentation talking about things general to alternative assets, um, uh, issues around definition, um, uh, talking about why uh, they are good things to have in a portfolio, uh, performance and related uh, type concepts, and then in the second bit uh, talk about um, potential DC type uh, issues uh, with... um, uh, with alternative investments. So with definition without really uh, writing a story, um, I kind of say, well, what do alternative investments look like? Uh, some of the common characteristics are liquidity, so they tend to be illiquid, uh, they are unlisted. Um, Varying type of periodic valuations, they will be regular but uh, more infrequent than obviously with uh, listed investments where you've got minute by minute uh, 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 sort of uh, a gameplay. So monthly, quarterly, six-monthly valuation. There's a few other things that one can put but I think uh, that gives you the idea of what we're talking about. Uh, Typically you've got infrastructure funds, you've got direct property funds, uh, hedge funds, private equity funds, unlisted credit. uh, commodity funds uh, in the um, in the US, and, and and there's a whole lot of other things that people p- put on the same uh, on the same platform of alternatives. Um, I will tend to focus uh, sort of today's talk more on the let's say the one extreme side, sort of PE funds, your 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 your, your buy and hold ten year lock up top investments. Uh, I think that's really where the general talk uh, will be biased towards uh, in this uh, in this presentation. Um, so some few background uh, numbers, uh, there are various obviously publications that put up stats. Um, so on an a, a Africa continent basis, um, South Africa is sort of more on the right, uh, your, 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 your rightmost column there, and the top bit um, orange. Uh, part of the bar there shows you how much is invested in alternative investments in South Africa uh, by a sort of typical South Africa pension fund, both DC and DB, so uh, much as you've asked me to talk about uh, alternatives in a DC context, I think there's a conversation to be had about alternatives in a broader context because I don't think that we make enough use of this space. Um, given that's what I do, I would like to see more use in this space. So, um, the other countries towards the left, particularly if you start looking at Zambia and Kenya and uh, where there's a broader um, uh, supposed use, um, uh, I would argue that it is more coincidental than uh, design in that you'll find that it's it's really only direct property that sits in there and just by virtue of um, those uh, particularly pension uh, funds having held uh, properties, uh, mostly these properties that their offices are in or one or two buildings, uh, maybe you know, the government type offices, so it's not really a, a sort of forward-looking strategy that said this is the alternative pool that we need to have either for diversification or, or, or things like that. So, so generally quite low use and you compare that to sort of uh, you know, global stats where uh, in excess of 20% is in alternative investments. Um, sort of again maybe expanding on the global stats one this is a survey published by uh, Towers Watson the latest one and showing um, around 25 percent uh, inclusion of alternatives in portfolios um, most of that growth that you've seen over time have been through mainly hedge funds and private equity those are the two that are tending to increase uh, in a uh, in a dramatic way um, but again you, it's, it's acknowledged and, and you can see that there's the, a huge improvement of uh, um, alternatives and uh, uh, attempts to get the benefits uh, that alternatives offers to portfolios to uh, the members of those funds. So I call this sort of reasons to believe. So why do I feel that uh, alternatives are uh, to be considered in portfolios? Um, uh, the first bit would be superior risk-adjusted returns. Um, I'll show some numbers. Uh, there are some arguments around performance and serious arguments around performance, but I, um, I believe that alternatives do outperform and they do add uh, uh, to a performance profile of a, of a portfolio. Um, they would give access to what I'll call special asset classes or spaces. Um, the renewable energy industry in South Africa has been growing, it is new. Um, it's all funded through uh, private money, so uh, private equity is able to respond very quickly and get into this space, and uh, it's, it's one, again, distinct way of getting access to uh, to returns um, in a, as I say, very, it's very professional. I mean, SAFCA tells us there's in excess of 700 uh, people employed in the alternatives uh, industry, and that's a closed hedge funds, so you're talking about uh, members of, of, of SAFCA itself, so it's a very it's a growing industry in South Africa, and it's, it's, uh, it's very robust. Um, so it's able, it's, an, it's, it's, it's able to get you and your clients into spaces that um, the listed market will take time to, um, to maybe uh, follow. So renewable energy is one, uh, rose 10, 15 years ago uh, when the N3 and 4 toll roads were built. Again the private equity money went into that, so there are you know, pension funds that own uh, slug of that. Um, a bit more controversial, the N2 uh, project, which uh, was actually a few years ago, but have not uh, uh, come to fruition because of the uh, protestation around that, and the e-tolling program in in Houteng uh, as well is one of those. But it just, I'm just putting these up really to show that this is the type of opportunities. Um, another way to look at it is that in African markets particularly where uh, liquidity uh, in, or in the liquid space, the representation of the economy is lacking. Uh, those markets are, are, are very shallow, uh, so ability to invest clients money in those markets and to access them through the markets uh, uh, is still some way to go so private equity for me is one way to play uh, to play that space. Uh, uh, private equity also gives one a focused uh, growth portfolio. Um, so if you look at the type of company that seeks private equity help, it's the one that's in a growth phase that's looking for expansion capital. So, um, so you've got a very concentrated uh, uh, space that gives you a slightly different dynamic to just a broad uh, uh, market index uh, in a way. So it does add a dimension, I think, that's worth um, picking up on and, and, and following. Uh, there's also the diversification benefits, as we, uh, as we well know. Um, I've spoken about renewable uh, space, so this is just a picture of um, one of the uh, phase one type um, renewable energy projects that's been operational now. The plant has been operational, I think, for about two years now, uh, feeding electricity to the grid. Um, And on the other side, sort of a wind project um, out in the Eastern Cape. Um, So when, when the government brought out the renewable energy project um, and, uh, and invited bids and tendering to happen, um, you obviously had—it uh, was a new industry in South Africa. Everybody had to go and learn basically from scratch, and people took various routes to, you know, to find uh, comfort uh, and to put money in. But inevitably, with a new industry, um, there will always be a risk premium to be had. Uh, uh, particularly by those that have done their homework and certifies themselves that uh, this is definitely worth following. Um, you would have seen massive uh, compression in the pricing from phase one to phase two, where uh, I'm going to throw out sort of wider numbers, but but uh, not quite exact. So in the first phase, where um, you could bid, let's say, for uh, for wind at something like, I don't know, 120 uh, cents per kilowatt hour, and then you currently are, are down to something like 70 cents. So people that went in early, that did their homework and went in early, were able to, 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 to get the benefit of um, and, and the premium of being first movers in that, uh, in that industry. And, uh, and those returns, you know, will be heard by, by, uh, by such. So. So i say being open to, to uh, investing in spaces like this uh, gives one um, ability to access that first mover advantage. So that's an opportunity. Um, another step that we put up um, as we seek to build properties across the continent, um, that's to show the huge uh, demand um, that's likely to come out of uh, the, the Africa growth story. Um, so, if you just look at it in comparison, this is uh, this is Johannesburg. Um, you know that we've got very, uh, we've got many malls um, who keep going at, at building. I mean, we're still building what's going to be the biggest mall in, on the, on the continent. Um, yet, we've got you know 50,000 people per mall. Um, if you do that to the square meter, you'll be yeah, it's it's a scary number. How, many, how much property we've got? So, if you look at that on the one end, and you know you go through the process, and you come to Lagos, where you have 1.7 million um, per, uh, 1.7 million people per more. So, it's clear that there's an opportunity here in terms of uh, being able to harness the, the potential growth story out of uh, out of the Nigeria, of Nigeria story. Sure, you will have to adjust for. Uh, wealth and available money to spend, and the likes, to get to the uh, to the right proportion. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, 1.7 million divided by 50,000. That's kind of the ratio of most could come in, into into Nigeria. Um, but uh, I would argue that that gap says there is an opportunity, whichever way you look at it. Uh, so it's a question of how does one access it. And um, again, I would argue that private equity. Is probably one of the best ways and best placed uh, uh, processes to go through to get to uh, to these type of uh, to these type of returns. Um, talking to performance, um, yeah, it's my condition that globally uh, PE outperforms uh, major markets. It outperforms in South Africa it outperforms, and I put up numbers. Um, So, this uh, this information I think published by Bain uh, out of the annual private equity report. Um, So, um, 10 to 20 years is sort of the the right framework in which to look at what uh, private equity does. Shorter term, uh, it's it's got a lot more noise in it. Um, So, over 10 years, you can see uh, quite comfortably that uh, private equity is ahead. Um, Same for, for Europe in the 10 to 20-year space, um, even bigger magnitudes of art performance there. Um, In the Asia-Pacific space, uh, the same, Um, again, quite a significant magnitude of art performance by the unlisted space over over listed uh, markets. So again, for me, this is a good uh, uh, story to tell for alternative investments that says that not having this stuff in a portfolio. Um, is leaving quite a lot on the table from a uh, generating returns for for client portfolios. Um, uh, still taking to performance, quite a busy slide. But I, I like this slide because it, the IFC is a practitioner in this uh, in the emerging market space. Quite big, uh, they've got a huge portfolio, so they uh, they speak experience rather than uh, theoretical numbers. Um, so the top uh, left of the graph. That shows you their own portfolio experience uh, outperforming uh, the relevant indices in the in the P space that they're playing in, but importantly also outperforming the listed markets in the bottom left uh, of the of the screen. Um, but uh, but like, the reason I like the IFC numbers is because they've got quite a huge chunk of exposure to the to the Africa continent, which is supposed where we would be playing if we are in the in the space. So you'll see that they've got the a sub sahara uh, component of their portfolio is, is just shy of 30%, and uh, that excludes the North America bit, which is in the MENA uh, category. So, this is a portfolio that could have about 30% of exposure to the Africa continent, and it's done so well. I mean, it's done really fantastically well for the IFC. Um, the South Africa story um, Rescura publishes uh, 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 data on a quarterly basis, um, taking South African markets. Um, uh, 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 data and, and that's uh, increasingly popular with uh, supply, particularly people that are participating in the survey, so it's getting more and more representative of the space quite appropriately. Um, so the top left graph is uh, uh, something that I always question about. I was still wondering whether I should include it in this in this presentation, but I thought I should, just because these the arguments that I end up having with people, you look at uh, IRR of a PE fund and you look at the uh, uh, the return, uh, the market return of a publicly listed uh, index, and then you just compare like that without making any adjustments. Of course, that's not the right way to do it. Um, but um, if you just look at the IRR published on that graph, which just again focusing on the 10 year side, you see uh, sort of 20% IRR of the PE uh, the industry outperforming the OZ, outperforming the SWIX. Uh, falling a bit shy of the FINDY, um, but as I say, that uh, it's not quite the right way to look at it. Um, maybe a point to make around the South African market is that the P uh, space uh, tends to shy away from resources in South Africa, so therefore the FINDY is the more appropriate benchmark to look at uh, uh, the private equity industry against. Um, uh, if you look at it on a, what's called public map, Market equivalent, uh, which is the more appropriate way to uh, to compare uh, PE and listed markets, despite um, the big uh, outperformance of the Findi that we've seen in the recent uh, years, particularly in the last three years, where you know the likes of NASPERS have been pushing that uh, side of the market, and you've had uh, you know banks recovering uh, quite strongly post the 2008 crisis as well. So. Um, Despite that phenomenal period, uh, you still have got, uh, on a like-for-like comparison basis, uh, PE outperforming the, um, the listed uh, the listed space, uh, doing much better than the general indices where resources have, have, have underperformed. Um, also, to take note that through time, if you just look at rolling ten-year numbers for for PE in South Africa, is that it has held. Pretty nicely for me, around the 20% mark. So again, it has uh, been able to produce, uh, I think, good return for uh, for, for investors through time, um, and even the short-term numbers, um, not that bad. Um, even though I say, for this space, uh, you kind of want to focus more on the longer term on on, uh, yeah, on comparison. So this allows me to make the assertion that, that uh, you know, not investing uh, through. Uh, PE or, or, or alternatives, in broad terms, uh, again means that uh, clients are not being uh, fully served. Uh, just a word on—I um, make the comment about performance comparison. So all the numbers that I've showed, except for that one uh, graph on the on the last slide, where I adjusted to make sure that they are uh, public market equivalent. Uh, there's a lot of different variations of uh, of this space. Um, uh, you guys sort of more steeped in the maths and the and the formulaic calculations could go into town and in taking the various uh, processes apart or the various uh, variations of PME apart. Um, but they, yeah, there are like five or six different ways you can calculate PME. But all it seeks to do is to equate um, what is a timing dependent return. Uh, of 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 private equity with returns of the public market. Uh, so as long as you apply whatever methodology consistently to the data set, uh, you will be able to to compare uh, uh, the, the one with the other. Um, the methodologies that I was used in the last slide that I showed uh, is one you basically just dividing um, uh, sort of your your in your numerator you you put through returns that are coming from the PE market uh, PE portfolio into the stock market, and in the denominator, you basically just, as you invest in the uh, PE, you put equivalent number in the market. So, obviously, the numerator has got both PE and, um, and stock market, and the denominator only has stock market. So, clearly, if the numerator is higher than the denominator, means that the difference is due to the PE return that have come out of the, uh, that space. Um, so... Uh, which is why a number above one it uh, shows you outperformance. Um, but I think that's really, so, so that's one to highlight that it's quite, uh, it's important and it's not one that uh, uh, quite a lot of people don't necessarily take into account uh, when they look at the difference between PE and um, market return. So why does uh, private equity funds generally outperform? Um, the listed counterparts. Um, there are again a whole number of reasons. Um, I've just stated three. Um, there's a much greater alignment between management and investors. Um, so, you know, uh, there's less room for uh, for sort of what you call the agency problem, where management acts in their own interest away from the interests of the shareholders in the PE space. Because your, your investor is a lot more heavily involved and in, the, in, the, in the business. Uh, I always say leverage focuses the mind, um, but I think another important aspect really of leverage is really about the appropriate uh, capital uh, structuring. You know, In the listed space, when we analyze company, we often talk about lazy balance sheet. Uh, where either management for whatever reason have opted to put in a lot of cash for their own protection for whatever reason. In the uh, in the PE space, you find that capital is managed quite tightly uh, to make sure that the business is appropriately capitalized but not overly so. Uh, in most cases, people would argue that there's overuse of leverage which puts business at risk, um, but uh, whichever way. Uh, you, you get a much more tighter uh, capital management framework out of PE uh, businesses than I think you drew uh, in, in listed environment. Um, and the final point is that concentrated ownership um, enables exercise tight oversight. So as I said, there's much closer tightness. Uh, in some PE companies' environments that I know, there's monthly reporting, so basically the, the shareholders or the owners of the business uh, also get you know access to management reports and regular reporting, so there's very little room for, uh, you know, management to behave in a wayward manner in a PE in a PE world. So that I think does allow the um, the performance to be uh, to be more, you know, on the high side when compared to to, to listed entities. So, given that, when we talk about uh, DC funds, liquidity becomes the biggest. Um, uh, factor I asked the question uh, is liquidity is necessary for PE to to outperform um, there's a school of thought that says liquidity is a necessary condition for outperformance in the PE world um, uh, arguing that 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 liquidity of the instruments allows because if I'm in a company which I know that this company is only up for sale in six or seven years time in the meantime, I just go to knuckle down and produce returns and make sure that I create value for, for when the day for, for, for trade comes. I'm not too worried about what my next six-monthly um, statement is going to look like. Uh, you know, we've as like I said, we are clearly aligned between what the shareholders want and what uh, the management is trying to achieve. So uh, that illiquidity, in a way, creates a space for the, for the magic to happen, so to speak. Um, so ultimately, the end. What you're asking for is that the investor must judge between the return that they'll get out of the uh, the, the illiquidity, uh, um, or the premium return, return premium that they'll get out of the out of the lack of liquidity in the uh, in the space. So um, it, it it becomes about that. So when we say, well, DC funds need liquidity. Um, are we saying do we want to create liquidity of PE? In which case, then we start losing some of the uh, the benefit or the necessary precondition for it to succeed, or do we say, well, is there room for for DC funds to well find ways of not needing that much liquidity? But you know, I'll touch on to, on that uh, as well. So this is where I start making a few assumptions, or rather. Just making sure that I can make assumptions that uh, continues my story. Because so otherwise, if I, if I go too much to the facts, it may spoil the story. So, uh, well, DC funds versus DB funds liabilities pass on to the member. So, therefore, there's again a, a sharper and keener interest on the more periodic valuation that. uh, that the the client uh, get. I would argue that in South Africa, we already saw that South Africa is a young country. Um, uh, We know that uh, quite a lot of the young members of society are unemployed, but I would still argue that um, even though the average member of a typical pension fund would be higher than the average of the country, um, pension fund age will still be on the on the younger side, so we're not sitting with a population that's about to retire in our pension funds. By and large, we're still sitting with a young and healthy uh, population that needs long term returns. So, therefore, the average, average holding period uh, should be, I uh, stress, should be long. There are obviously other factors that come into play. Um, I would contend that periodic pricing is required. Um, I say periodic pricing, not necessarily daily pricing. I think um, there's, there's probably room to look at what is the most appropriate in terms of uh, ability to price the funds uh, uh, for members. So those are really the broad, I think, uh, assumptions and theses that I like to put on the table around DC funds. So if we're looking at putting alternatives in DC funds, what really should we be considering? Um, one, I'm saying you know, perhaps uh, daily pricing and and the extreme liquidity that's required in theory for DC funds. Um, you know, maybe we need to revisit that. Um, there's some work that I've come across, uh, mainly pushed out of uh, BlackRock, as you know, BlackRock is the biggest uh, investment manager in the uh, in the world. Um, they've done a bit of work around integration of alternatives and. Using what they call risk factor basis, I have not come across similar work for South African markets, so maybe that's a, a project for somebody in the room to, uh, to to take on. But I'll touch a bit on that as well. Um, so another way to 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 do this would be to say, uh, don't jump in at once if you want to go into alternatives in a DC fund. Uh, rather, uh, you know, let's ladder the the the. the the exposure, uh, let's stagger it into, uh, into this fund. So I'll sort of put a few graphs around that. Um, and then finally, I'll just look at a few uh, other things that industry can consider um, to bring uh, appropriate type product for, uh, for, for, for DC funds. So this is really the second bit of the presentation, as I said, uh, we'll, talk, uh, we'll talk to. Um. I think I've made most of these points, so I'll just skip that one. So, the, this issue around risk factors that has come up uh, in this uh, in this research that I said was done only by BlackRock that I've come across, uh, speaks to saying you want to get a framework where you can, at the end, compare listed and unlisted investments on a like-for-like basis and be able to interchange uh, uh, between the two. So what you're trying to do is to come to a point where you have said, what are the, whatever asset classes you've got, you say, well, what is the risk factor composition of this portfolio, and just make sure that within that framework, you've got enough liquid instruments within a specific uh, risk factor. Because if you do that, then you are then able to either up or down uh, risk factor exposure using the liquid side of the portfolio without necessarily compromising um, the... So uh, just a broad example would be that there should be a high correlation between equities listed equities and corporate bond spreads, because your corporate bond spreads should be tighter when the economy is doing well, and that's the same time that uh, uh, equity companies uh, or other listed equities are doing well. On the other hand, if the economy is under distress, you're going to be seeing more defaults, so the corporate debt is at, at, at risk, so therefore the spread should widen. So there's a point then to say, well, if I can get better return out of unlisted uh, corporate debt. Which is going to be illiquid, uh, I can pair that in a portfolio with listed equity and be able because i 'm talking to the same risk at the end of the day, so that 's really uh, in a nutshell the, uh, the the concept so here, in this graph, we sort of say what are some of the descriptive uh, characteristics that we 're looking for so secure income uh, traditional sort of equivalent would be debt these are Uh, Asset examples of the the alternative space, so your renewable energy infrastructure. So, renewable energy, for instance, where you've got a 20 year power purchase agreement with the government, it's uh, got an inflation index type pricing structure. I mean, the plant that I showed you there, all that's going to happen is that the sun must shine. That's it. The rest is just very little risk. So, you look at that and you say, well, there must be a high degree of comparability between that and um, and, uh, and government debt. Um, sure, there is some risk, but, but there must be a high level of, of, of correlation and comparability. So I can actually put these two together with government debt as my tradable portion of that particular risk aspect. Um, and similarly, you go to sort of the lower level of credit where you're talking about uh, sub-investment grade uh, you know, type, uh, type debt and then you go further down, up the risk spectrum now when you talk about growth uh, profile, where you talk about uh, equity and PE. So that's, that's, that's the idea. So the next few slides, I'll just move through, but we're trying to talk this space to say, you can manage liquidity indirectly in a portfolio. By, so you don't necessarily say, okay, if I want to sell uh, PE or infrastructure today, there are other things that you can sell that speaks the same language which I look at. All you've got to worry about is to say, do I have uh, a sufficient level of alternatives in my portfolio to ensure that I get some of the benefits that we spoke about in terms of our performance? Uh, but is it also not too big to ensure that I, can, I get tripped up if I need to, uh, to up and down my, um, my, my, my risk levels? So uh, from the previous um, sort of classifications, you can then start doing you know, correlations to make sure how do these things correlate with each other, so some work again has been done. So just comparing risk factor allocation versus asset class allocation, so uh, where you've got uh, asset risk factors, equity risk factor rates, risk factors, spreads, inflation, and how do those uh, how do those then uh, correlate with each other and, and make sure you use that as sort of an overlay uh, over and above your typical uh, asset class type. Um, uh, classification that we, we tend to end up with. So basically what I would like to see us starting to do is to do both these and, and, and use that as a way to, to, uh, to talk uh, and to look into how we can go into D.C. funds. Uh, with um, A lot of colors, if you can just focus on the two bars on the left for me. Um, so, your first one, again, just showing your traditional capital allocation where you've allocated to equities and bonds and, uh, and, and, and credit, but when you convert that into its risk factor component, you can see that it looks slightly different. Um, so using the same methodology then going to the right side where you're now adding alternatives and then you use the same to then convert it into, into uh, risk allocation. You are then able to play better between liquids and illiquids. You see now suddenly you've got a much higher uh, equity risk allocation on the, on, the extreme right, uh, on the extreme right bar. I know you're sitting there trying to calculate exactly how the ratio between the one to the other is, and I've referenced the paper at the end. Do we give them the slides, of course? Yeah, so I've just put the references at the end. You guys can go and read and get into town, but I think this is important work. I think that's starting to come out that starts to speak to some of the stuff that we we're battling with, and 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 where it's is now you, you can apply this in practice. So, if you look at so this sort of the latest um, expected return profile out of sort of the UK UK cap investor, as I said, most of this work has been done more for. Uh, for, for the overseas market. So, if you can invest, excuse me, if you can invest that, and you're investing only in the traditional asset classes, you are um, basically confined to the dark blue lines. And your, 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 your sort of your high debt, your your high certainty di- debt income is going to come from your treasuries and your, and uh, your 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 high end corporates. And that's it. That's all you've got. Um, but if you, if you bring in alternatives into the mix, you start looking at, as you said, the infrastructure debt, which by, by nature of the construction of the contracts uh, that lie behind this, these transactions, you can impute quite a high degree of certainty around your income stream. So you can then start interplaying those two to up the potential uh, yeah, for uh, for earnings, but obviously you don't just look at the total numbers and say, "Oh, I'm going to go and uh, just swap everything out," because then you start getting into your liquidity problem. So you've got to measure, you know, what is the liquidity that I'm going to require, but at the same time ensure that I can, uh, uh, I can up the, the, the return profile. And similarly with the uh, on the equity side, um, where your pure private equity uh, is interchangeable with uh, just a broader listed market. So that's really the idea of uh, of uh, looking at these things at a Risk factor level, it says I'm able then to interchange and uh, and add uh, alternatives, but add them in a way that I can still control my liquidity because I understand uh, which risk factors I'm playing with. Um, Moving on from that, I mean, just uh, the simple idea of saying another way to get into uh, the alternative space for a for a DC fund. Because uh, my understanding is that one of the main concerns around DC funds is that people are coming and going, so you don't want uh, somebody to buy today and they're there for the first two years when the fund is undergoing its sort of interest investment pains and is taking in all the costs uh, up front, and then they leave the fund and somebody comes in, in year three, uh, as the big benefit is starting to happen out of, out of, out of that fund, and it's a legitimate concern. Um, so one way to make sure that you don't do it that way. So here I've just basically drafted a picture where you've invested, you said, okay, I'm gonna go 10% into alternatives and you just spread it equally. Uh, You start this year, you spread it equally into uh, a PE fund, a property fund, and a infrastructure fund. Um, So that would be sort of the cash flow profile. I'm assuming that you invest over the first four years and the next four years are Benefit, yes. So basically, the, the, the investments comes back. So everything that's invested in 2015 comes back in 2019, 2016, 2020, so and so. So clearly, if somebody is here for the full profile, they will get the huge benefits out of the investment. But if they're there up to that point where you've dispersed that, dispersed that, and then somebody only coming in there, clearly that person is going to benefit a whole lot more than the person that left. I I mean, that's I think in a nutshell the issue when it comes to DC funds. So. One way of starting to look at this and saying, well, can we do different? Well, we can by just taking it over a longer period. So instead of going in one year, we go over, let's say, six years. So you do your infrastructure fund this year, you do your property fund in two years' time, you do your pure PE fund in another two years' time. Um, In that sense, you do spread the point at which people are coming in, so you've shallowed out your your payment profile, um, and you, at some point, as you start receiving out of the infrastructure fund where you started, you're still then paying in the, you know, in the other funds. So as some investors are coming, they're benefiting from the earlier investments, but they're making investments into the newer, uh, into the newer fund. Um, again, I'm working on the assumption, as I said earlier, that we've got growing. We've got young population, so we've got a growing cash profile. lot of these things. So much as this is an issue in terms of in and out going, um, I'm thinking here that it is more on the margin than in the main. So overall, once you get to a point where you've got a fully seasoned uh, PE exposure in your your portfolio, you are then able to... um, to turn over, because some investments will be coming and some investments will be going. So now, uh, beneficiaries—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's just getting started. I think once you started and you're in it, uh, the problem will tend to go away at some um, at some at some stage later in the year. Um, I've just thrown here uh, sort of where where Liberty is. So Liberty, obviously, our our parent uh, company at Stanley. So. So what has been happening is, as we, we've been building up our alternatives capability, is that Liberty through the shareholder portfolio has been seeding this capability. So they've been, actually been making actual investments. So they've invested, uh, you know, a, a chunk of money. And, and that's actually another avenue when it comes to solutions that's quite available, I think, for, for pension uh, funds to talk to the large insurers about, because I think most of the large insurers do have on their capital. Access to these things that they can create product off. So, the infrastructure portfolio is fully well invested. It's under underway. Uh, the the property fund is is committed. Uh, private equity fund by end of this year or early next year uh, will be committed. So, by sort of 2015, twenty uh, sixteen into twenty seventeen, you will have an infrastructure fund that's starting to. Money back. As I said, that plant that I showed you, there's one of the plants that sits in this portfolio that's already got two years of operation. So, after three years of operation under the renewable energy program, you're able to sell this investment. So, you're starting to come into this 2016 2017 area. So, if you have a DC fund that wants to get into the alternative space, there is a good way to start talking to those that have invested earlier using balance sheet to say, we can start getting access and we can start beating the JCF because you then will be coming out of, clearly it's gonna cost you more. You're not gonna be able to access sort of the top, the very high end of the returns because some of this will be dangerous and, and uh, but the concept is really the same. It's just saying, um, there's a way to, to, you know, to get through the JK. Um So, what are the other things that really the industry could be doing? I'm, I've been talking so far about um, DC funds, catch a wake up, don't want daily liquidity, you know, just come full on. But in the reality, I know that life doesn't work like that. You got to look at what are the things that can be done from the product provider side to ease. Um, or to meet uh, some of the requirements, sort of uh, halfway. There's some work being done. There's some reports that are starting to come out of the UK and US that uh, these two entities that I mentioned here are putting together funds that will have liquidity mixed through alternatives and, um, and 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 listed vehicles, and they'll be valuing, giving sort of more frequent valuation, even up to daily, using uh, using models um, to allow for. Uh, full on uh, d c work, but uh, they're clearly still um, sketchy on details so obviously it's a competitive advantage for them, but it looks that like industry is responding in a way that will allow uh, d c fund to um, uh, to to have access i've mentioned life company balance sheet it is really an important avenue i think um, that pension funds should consider that. Where these things are sitting on, on, on the balance sheet of of life, life companies, you you could have um, you've seen uh, private equity retail offerings, for instance, with some kind of liquidity guarantee, yes at a discount, but it is that type of thing that one is talking about here. So there's definitely clearly conversations for me to be had uh, between pension funds and life companies that hold these things on balance sheet. Um, uh, in global world, we've seen developing secondary market where. Uh, there is trade between um, those that are wanting to get out of uh, exposures in the alternatives um, for one reason or another and those that are wanting to get in. So again, uh, it's an avenue that's uh, at a global level. I'm not sure that in South Africa we are there quite yet in terms of getting significance in that, uh, in that space, but that's one way to, to kind of look forward to, to say, liquidity, at a secondary level will provide ability to get out uh, should that need arise um, and if one pushes this into the listed fund environment uh, which is more on the extreme side so listed property I suppose is spring up uh, from the need by investors to access uh, the property market Um as a share that's an proxy for you know for the listed uh, for for private equity uh, zaida uh, rainnet those are, you know, sort of, it's an extreme way of getting liquidity into um, which, in a way, you can argue that it starts, you start to lose um, the illiquidity premium, um, you know, the, the condition that I, I, was, I had that illiquidity is a necessary condition for, uh, for the art performance, um, so you know, one will have to look quite carefully there to say does that uh, erode Um, The other benefits are still there, because where Braid, for instance, have bought out 90% of of Virgin, you still get that concentrated uh, type of management focus. Uh, When they make investments as well, they go and and take you anywhere between 30 and 60% of chunks of companies. So again, they're able to exert the type of management control there. Um, But then one just wonders to what extent are they able to cocoon themselves and say, well, I've got a five or seven year horizon, I don't have to worry about uh, my next six monthly numbers, whether that is maintained in this, uh, in this environment or not. So to conclude, um, I would say, alternatives have a clear role to play in portfolios. Um, evidence suggests to me that there's a slow take up, particularly post rock 28, Um, the amendment that have allowed a bigger portion of uh, alternatives in in our funds. Um, So I think there's work to be done to to increase that. Um, But there's also work on our side as uh, providers of product in the space uh, to work hand in hand with uh, asset consultants and uh, asset owners um, to find a framework that, that works for uh, for both sides. So that, um, I'll, I'll stop there, uh, see, I've put in a slide with uh, a few references, and that's us. Thank you, yeah.
0: Thank you Patrick. Um, we've got about 15 minutes left, so we can uh, host a, a few questions. Um, there's a question at the back that I see. Thank you for the presentation. Um, Do do you believe the recent regulatory environment, which seems to be calling more for um, greater standardization, um, lower cost, more transparency, and perhaps even uh, greater liquidity, um, would act as a headwind to further investment into alternative
1: assets? So I think Uh, One of the thoughts when I was putting this presentation together is what are the things that we should be arguing for, because when this legislation comes up, it does require us to comment. Um, What are the things that we should be advocating for in this space? Um, So there's clearly room for a higher usage of of passives, which is one way to get uh, costs down. Um, you know, is the high cost of private equity uh, fully warranted? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, but in the South African context, I think it is not a extremely over traded space. So there's probably, it is definitely higher than, you know, what you will get in the normal active world. You're definitely not going to do. Uh, this type of work for twenty five or fifty basis points it does require a higher number. Is it two percent or something lower there i don't know um, so costs can be contained differently. It is not necessarily that you only have to include low cost product. you know you can come to an average that still gives you you know a decent cost basis um, so on the one end i'm saying there's value to be had here we need to be able to argue for that value to be included in the legislation changes Um, but i take your point that it is perhaps moving in a way that speaks um, you know a bit against some of what we what we're wanting to see um but but i think it's our role because we do comment in those uh, in those things we have a role to play to ensure that uh, it comes out uh, in a way that works for, for all. Thanks, Patrick.
0: Um, question there? Uh, Aha! <laughs> <laughs> Anton, guess what? <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, question. The... Yes, it's uh, it's Mario. Thank you for an interesting uh, presentation, Patrick. Um, you mentioned and you showed us the outperformance of alternative classes, uh, or actually PE funds, over 10 and 20 years all over the the developed world. Um, The interesting thing obviously also showed us over the last 10 years a meaningful increase in alternative assets from 5 to 25%. My question is, to what extent do you think that increase has driven the outperformance and what would it look like in a more normalized uh, situation where we don't see that increase? And secondly, is there room in South Africa if we see a pickup in the percentage uh, invested in these kind of assets that it could also drive um, stronger performance due to, I guess, more aggressive uh, revaluation.
1: Okay. So, so on the first question, I, I don't think the increase in allocation is leading to the increase in returns. Because uh, if you take a PE fund, I mean, the return of a PE fund is the sum total of the performance of the companies underlying and the purchase and selling of the companies themselves. Um, so, I'm not sure that because, I mean, yeah, it's not a it's not like I'm selling the one stock to the other guy who wants to come in. We're having to create more stock of private equity or privately owned entities by and large. So I think that's, that's not as associated, um, uh, you know, as that. Um, in the South African context, will we see the, you know, the, the increase? I mean, the regulation allowed for it. Um, it has been now, was it four or five years since REC 28 changed meaningfully to this level? So I don't know what the normal catch up time is but it should because I mean, there is as long as there there's a clear evidence of the advantage from a return perspective and a diversification perspective it should you know it should happen but you know what path um, exactly does it follow um, you know I'm not sure I'm quite positive that the increase advocacy for use of derivatives and I gather you had a chat this morning around use of smart beta, those types allows for, in my mind, because of the cost factor, allows for introduction of the PE type structures in, uh, in the mix because you can reduce costs in the one end in terms of just the factors of the beta side of the, of the market and allow pure alpha to be, uh, to be had on the, uh, and pay for it uh, on, the, uh, on the PE type structure side.
0: More questions? Ah, question. Hi, Patrick. My name is Johannes Schröder. I'm um, just just building on the previous two questions. Um, na- National Treasury is proposing a ban on performance fees um, in in default investment strategies. And um, given that the vast majority of assets remain in the default, mm. and given that alternatives rely so heavily on performance fees, um,
1: do you, what do you think that'll do? To the demand and supply of, of alternative assets in South Africa. Yeah. So I mean, it's a it's a concern again. That's that's um, uh, one thing that uh, for your question and the previous question. Um, I, and I mentioned to a, to a colleague last week, that I've accepted a speaking invitation from uh, from, from yourselves, and they were saying you want to go speak to a bunch of actuaries, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just think we need to have these conversations more and more because I, I think some of the changes that are happening are happening maybe not with, uh, you know, with, with full information. If we're having transparent conversations, we could end up arguing that the PE industry can survive on a 1 and 10, for instance, as a, as a fee structure rather than a 2 and 20 uh, if it's getting three times the asset levels that it is today. It can survive, so therefore maybe that's where it needs to go,, you know, but it needs to be a, a discussion. I as I say, I do not know that a fifty basis points flat fee would work for this. I mean I, I know I wouldn't do it for fifty <laughs> basis points. Um, so uh, yeah, as legislation frame now is a concern that if you don't have performance fee because. You are aligning. You're looking. You're looking somebody in for ten years. You know uh, the guy who's going to build that portfolio and make it short and and deliver the return will only get his money after you know seven to ten years of 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 staying in that. How do you get him interested in, in that length of time if it's not tied in with the? Um, so the alignment is important. So I think in this space to argue against performance fees. Um, wouldn't be right. Now, there are spaces where I'd agree that uh, maybe it is not a performance fee space, but in this space, I think performance fees are warranted.
0: Thank you, Patrick. More questions? Um, there's a question
1: there. Oh. Uh, Patrick, just uh, – name's Arthas. Just interested in your, your reference to the balance sheet of life insurers. Hmm. that one can overcome the first few years of the J curve via that. But I would imagine if I'm a shareholder in a life company and I have an asset that's now passed the negative investment section, why would I be willing to give the future proceeds of it more than the risk-free rate? What I'm really asking is can and mentioners really get a good return using the balance sheet of life insurance? I didn't say give. <laughs> it's definitely going to give. It- so, so the notion here is, how long is it going to? So, you you, you go on faith when you buy a private equity company. You know, we can model it, but you really go on faith as to what's going to transpire over the next. So, when we were building, um, the, again, the picture that I showed of the uh, the wind farm, we, we we own a wind farm um, uh, out in. Uh, Pea side, um, forget the forget the town. But anyway, one of the things we were worrying about when we started was just the risk of transporting the the blades. I mean, those blades that you see at the top of this are massive, they're huge things. You know, how are we going to get these things to site without damage, without causing havoc on the roads, those type of things? So we factor that risk in the portfolio in the pricing of the. Um, But I'm saying that risk is past now. Now we know how to do this. We can build, you know. uh, So it's that type of risk that, and we'll get our return for that. So if you come to me and say, Patrick, can we talk about me getting exposure to the infrastructure portfolio? We'll price it appropriately. But for us, so I I need more money, for instance, to go build the malls in, uh, in Lagos. So I'll trade it for your infrastructure bit. Because there I've, you know, already passed and I have got to build my mall in Lagos and in two, three years' time you'll come to me for the mall in Lagos and I'll move on to something else. I'm just saying balance sheet can transfer a little bit and ease the burden, particularly of the JKF, but it will be priced there. Um,
0: I think the reality is that, um, you know, South Africa is in a low interest rate environment. Um, low expected returns are expected into the future. Um, uh, in an earlier presentation, John made the point that, um, you know, if, if on average members are contributing at levels of about 12.5%, um, uh, a 30 or 40-year participation in a DC scheme is not going to yield uh, a replacement ratio anywhere close to uh, what might have been expected. And so, yield and the search for yield, I think, is, is, is going to be that much greater going forward. And I think um, we have to apply ourselves to these alternatives and, and overcome some of the challenges that they present. Um, there are some well known um, cases internationally, the Yale case for example, where investments in alternatives have, have, have yielded significant value for, 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 for those investors. And I think in the South African context, given what's going on on the continent and, and, and South Africa as a developing economy, we cannot ignore um, um, you know, these particular asset classes, notwithstanding the regulation that might uh, have been drafted that, that we're now sitting with that we need to comment on. Uh, Patrick, I'd like to thank you for a, a really great presentation. Um, on behalf of us all here today, we really appreciate the time you've made and the commitment uh, you've given us in terms of um, your presentation today. Thank you. Sure.